Hey Rebel Razor, I'm Alan Voilot and this is Star Wars 7x7. We're at episode number 1634 today and today is Star Patron Q&A Day. We've got questions that have been submitted by Star Patrons. Those are folks who are at the 501st level and above at patreon.com slash SW7x7. And I'm going to share with you three questions that have been thrown my way. And one of them is going to be one that I hope that you will consider for your own world as well. And I'd love to hear your answers to it. So let's start off with a question by a gentleman named Jared Gorman. Jared has this to say. In looking at the design for the Millennium Falcon, specifically the YT-1300, one source, StarWars.Wikia.com, that would be Wikipedia, of course, noted that hundreds of thousands of YT-1300s were still in service as of 40 ABY. If this is true, why have we not seen more of them, and why would the Falcon be so recognizable and iconic? So this is an awesome question, and especially when you consider that We've seen manuals that show, you know, so many different configurations for YT-1300s and, you know, the Falcon itself is something like 70 years old by the time Han Solo gets it in Solo, a Star Wars story, and this was supposed to be one of the most commonly produced freighter models. Yeah, I agree. It's a very good question. So one of the things that we have to point out is that the quote that's being brought to play here about there being hundreds of thousands kicking around comes from a novel called Legacy of the Force, colon, Fury by the late great Aaron Alston. And that novel, as it's mentioned in the question, takes place in 40 ABY. And this novel is, of course, part of the expanded universe, which is now dubbed Legends and which essentially has been wiped out from the current canon. So, you know, it makes me think of the fact that you know, one of the things that Lucasfilm did in the wake of the Disney purchase, and let's say it, you know, it's probably more directed by Disney than it is by Lucasfilm per se, but, you know, maybe it was. I don't know. There was a great stream of tweets by Pablo Hidalgo where he talked about the idea of rebooting the canon and how he thought that it was an insane idea at the time that it was initially presented to him. This was many, many years ago, before 2014, and yet... There were stories that you know he loved, and he cited a reference to one of them, uh, where unfortunately that story became no longer canon because of the Phantom Menace and what George Lucas did in there. And so, you know, the idea of this ever-expanding universe of stories and things beginning to conflict with each other, and how do you deal with that? And you know, there was a time where the thought of rebooting the canon to him was just you know anathema. anathema. Uh, that's how you say that. Uh, that just an impossible thing to consider. And yet, that's basically where we stand. So, you know, Fury as a story is now no longer an official story. But that being said, there is still evidence that the YT-1300 is still considered to be, you know, one of the most useful cargo freighters out there. And so, yeah, we should be seeing a lot more of them. And so, I guess then the question becomes... Well, where would we see them necessarily? So we only have a limited set of Star Wars stories right now. And so, you know, hopefully there have been YT-1300s that have appeared in the backstory or in the background in, say, Clone Wars and Rebels. And we haven't gotten to Star Wars Resistance yet so much. I mean, we have 11 episodes, but I don't think there's been a YT-1300 in the background of any of those scenes yet. But a YT-1300 did appear in a couple of episodes of the Clone Wars, and it also appeared in Attack of the Clones, and supposedly it was the Millennium Falcon itself that appeared in Revenge of the Sith in one of those blink and 
you'll miss it kind of Easter egg cameo shots. But otherwise, yeah, Jared, it's absolutely a valid question. I think we really should be seeing more of them. And considering that the fine folks at Lucasfilm have gone out of their way to detail a lot of different uh, ways of assembling a YT-1300 for various work and that could be performed by a YT-1300, I certainly hope that they will show us a few more of them in the future. As for why the Falcon is so immediately recognizable, well, it is certainly by us, but it does seem like that's the case for other characters as well. But then again, maybe that has to do with some, you know, advanced knowledge of it. I mean, with the Falcon flying around, it really seems to be the case that its reputation precedes itself, where it's already known to people who are seeing it. So, you know, Kylo Ren going, you know, that ship, like there's only one ship it could possibly be, right? But additionally, I think... You know, the only thing that's really external about the Falcon that is probably very different from your garden variety YT-1300 freighter is the pair of quad laser cannons on top and bottom. I don't think most freighters have those. Otherwise, I think Han's whole thing is to make that be, you know, as nondescript as possible. And so it shouldn't really look like it stands out among anything. But I think if there's one thing that would be different from anything else, it would have to be those pair, you know, those <laughs> sets of laser cannons on top and bottom. So, Jared, I hope that answers your question for you. And our next question here comes from Pamela Johnson. And Pamela wants to know this. What is the timeline between our heroes going their separate ways from Hoth to meeting up again in Cloud City and Bespin? Was the Empire actively pursuing the Falcon the entire time? Are there EU stories about this time and adventures the Falcon and crew had besides the asteroid field? I guess that was several questions. <laughs> LOL. And that's perfectly fine. Lay them on. Sometimes one inspires others. So... So I think the generally accepted thing is that with the Empire Strikes Back taking place in 3 ABY after the Battle of Yavin and Return of the Jedi taking place in 4 ABY, that it's you know roughly a year between the events of one movie and the other. And so my understanding as a kid was that it was something like six months in between uh, Empire and Jedi, or at least it was six months that Lando might have actually been in the employ of Jabba the Hutt to establish his cover. I've seen reports saying that it was a year-long search for Han Solo, and so maybe it was six months to them finding that he had actually made it to Tatooine, and then infiltrating from there with this crazy, ridiculous plan <laughs> that Luke had that you know only the Force would make a plan like that work and make it seem like it could work, but be that as it may. Um, I've read sources that say that it's about six months or so in between uh, the evacuation from Hoth to the confrontations on Cloud City, which makes sense if you're saying it's a year in between Empire and Jedi. Um, and then even if you were to say that it's actually a year just from the end of Empire to the beginning of Jedi, well, you know, the time frames are still such that it would fit in, like, if it's just a, barely at the end of 3 ABY, or barely at the beginning of 3 ABY, and barely at the end of 4 ABY for Return of the Jedi, then the timing still works out if it's a year and a half. So it's, you know, roughly six months. And, and as far as Legends stories go... There's nothing really out there that I've been able to find, and so it seems like that's exactly what happened, that the you know, the crew of the Millennium Falcon were on the run the entire time and made it finally to Bespin, and it took them about six months to do so. And the same thing for Luke Skywalker being on Dagobah, that he you know beat feet out of Hoth and out of that system, and 
got to Dagobah and then sensed that his friends were in trouble and then took off. Now, how long he was actually on Dagobah versus in transit time to and from, well, you know, that really kind of gets technical. <laughs> and I think there, you know, there are folks that have done calculations based on, you know, what a standard galactic gear looks like and what the hyperdrive model uh, for the <laughs> X-Wing was, comparatively speaking, and where, you know, the distance from Hoth to Dagobah and so forth. So I think I've heard between three and a half and four months that he was on Dagobah training. And that's, you know, a rough estimate. And so... Yeah, the Empire was basically pursuing Han and them the whole time until such time as the bounty hunters got called into the situation. Once it seemed like they had disappeared off of everybody's scopes and apology accepted Captain Nita and all that fun stuff, that Darth Vader sicked the bounty hunters on them and decided, hey, you know, let them take care of it. There isn't necessarily any story that exists in the expanded universe of what Darth Vader did in between sending the bounty hunters on their way and arriving at Cloud City. So he must have been up to something else. But yeah, there's no other particular story that says, you know, what they might have been doing. And so hopefully that answers your question, Pamela, and thank you very much for it. And now we've got one other one, and this is the question that I think is not just for me, but it's probably for everybody listening. So Bobby Gordon asks, and he says this is a question that Steele Saunders likes to ask, and so he wanted to pose this one to me. He said, what is your favorite background character and why? And he says that he thinks the gonk droid is his, but also Salacious B. Crumb. And I like this question as well. So good on Steele Saunders for coming up with this one. And for me, this is actually an easy one. It would have to be Malakili, who is also known as the Rancor Keeper from Return of the Jedi. And the scene that really sold me on him was when Luke Skywalker has defeated the Rancor monster and the guards at Jabba's palace are you know, struggling with him and trying to drag him out of the pit. And Malakili comes in and slams everyone aside. Just wham, wham. And he just clearly has no interest in any of this. And he goes in to see his rancor and just starts bawling. And it's just so heartbreaking and so funny with the physical comedy of it. And it's just, it's such a wonderful scene. Like, I absolutely love it. It has, you know, all the heart and all the drama and all the comedy of Star Wars. It's like just, it's this perfect little encapsulation. And the guy plays it so hysterically well. Like, I just absolutely love it. And interestingly, this is another one of those situations where in Star Wars, a character, a human character, is portrayed by one person but is voiced by another person. So a gentleman named Paul Brook is the actual physical Malakili actor, and the voice, which all we hear is his sobbing, is done by a guy named Ernie Faselius. And George Lucas actually you know, said something specific about his idea for the Rancor Keeper. He said, I like the idea that everyone loves someone, and even the worst, most horrible monster you can imagine was loved by his keeper, and the Rancor probably loved his keeper. And based on some stuff that's happened in the new expanded universe, if you will, that does certainly seem to be the case. They you know, have, and I think it's Chuck Wendig in particular in his Aftermath novels and all the little um, side stories and has talked about how very much the Rancor Keeper loved his Rancor and vice versa and that he was kind of lost after the attack on Jabba and, you know, just the Rancor dying and 
everything else being destroyed and he was just you know lost in the desert as it were until he came across Cobb Vanth who's the guy who founded Freetown and who is trying to you know, create a new and more democratic society on Tatooine in the remnants of everything that went down with um, Jabba's palace and the Red Sun Raiders, the you know other gang, criminal gang that was rising up on Tatooine. And Cobb Vanth is a guy who found the armor that appears to be Boba Fett's armor. They haven't said it's Boba Fett's armor, but you know everything you read about it makes it sound like it's Boba Fett's armor. And he seems to be the one who's become the new sheriff in this situation. And Malakili has found a home within that whole group of people and actually ended up starting a restaurant <laughs> with the head chef of Jabba's Palace with whom he was reunited at the time. So there you go. Uh, Malakili would be my favorite background character from any Star Wars movie, and I'd love to know what yours is as well. So wherever you happen to be catching this episode, let me know and let your fellow listeners and viewers know. And you can also do that on SW7x7.com as well at the post for this episode. And that is going to do it for this episode. And so, as usual, please you know consider subscribing if you're not already subscribing. And I hope you'll also consider joining the community at patreon.com slash sw7x7 at the 501st level or above, and you'll be able to submit your questions and get them answered on a show next month. And that is going to do it. So, as always, thank you again for joining me for this episode, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2018, Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.